And let's take our Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, we're looking at the entirety of the chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1031. As always, we'll begin in a word of prayer, then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow in prayer. Our Lord, we do thank you for a beautiful morning in which to gather. Lord, we do not take these days for granted. It's the highlight of our week. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song and in prayer, uh, to hear your word read to us, and now to be able to to take a passage of your word, to break it down, and, and to seek to make application of it to our lives. And Lord, as always, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, that we might understand your word. We pray that, that you would soften our hearts, that we would gladly receive what we learn here, and that you would give us hands that are eager to practice what we have learned. Lord, we pray that you would also be honored in this hour And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we are in Revelation chapter 6. Now in chapters 4 and 5, if you'll recall, the Apostle John was given a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he saw God there seated on his throne, and he was being worshipped by angels and saints. And God was holding a scroll in his right hand. And that scroll was sealed with seven seals. And this scroll represented God's plans for the culmination of world history. Then God sent an angel out, and the angel asked the question, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? In other words, who is qualified to execute God's decrees for the end of the world? And at first it looked like nobody was going to come forward, but then a lamb stepped up to the throne, and that lamb was our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in all the universe, he is the only person qualified to take that scroll from God's hand to break open the seals and to execute his decrees for the end of history. He alone is the eternal Son of God. He alone lived, died, and rose again to redeem a people for God. And only He can accomplish God's plan. Well, as soon as as Christ stepped up to take that scroll, the entire throne room erupted in worship. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then John looked again, and there was an even greater crowd. There were myriads and myriads and 10,000 times 10,000, and they all erupted in worship around the throne. And they said, verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four living creatures around the throne said, Amen. Then the elders fell down and worshipped 
Well, now we come to chapter 6, and here Christ begins breaking open those seven seals one at a time. And friends, the breaking of the first seal represents the commencement of that hour of trial which we were told about in chapter 3. This is that same future time period which Daniel chapter 12 calls the time of trouble, which Matthew 24 calls the time of tribulation, and which many other scripture texts call the day of the Lord. Okay, This begins the day of the Lord, and that's the term that I'll use throughout my sermon. So we begin here in verses 1 through 8. Here we have the breaking of the first four seals. This is the first phase of the day of the Lord. Let's begin with that first seal, verse 1. The Apostle John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. Verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so John is, is looking again at the throne room of heaven. He sees the lamb breaking that first seal. And as soon as the seal snaps open, this image of a rider on a white horse appears. Now, what does this represent? Well, this first image is not difficult for us to interpret because in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, our Lord Jesus explains that the day of the Lord will begin with the rise and the triumph of many antichrists. Okay, these are people who come onto the scene representing themselves either as Christ or as true representatives of Christ. But in fact, these are counterfeits who are intent on leading many astray. Friends, this must be what the first horseman represents. You will notice this first horseman is on a white horse and that he's wearing a crown. So he is presenting himself as Christ, or at least as a true representative of Christ. You'll also notice the rider has a bow but no arrows. So he is claiming to be on a a mission of peace. But then you'll also notice that he conquers many people. But this is not a military conquest. It's a spiritual conquest. He has no real arrows. He is conquering hearts and minds with his false teachings. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he writes, quote, The time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so there the Apostle Paul um, describes this future time when men will be ruled by their passions instead of their brains. And to justify their sinful passions, they will platform false teachers who will affirm them in their sin. And now we're here in Revelation 6, looking at this first horseman. And here, as the day of the Lord begins, we see represented the triumph of counterfeit religion. The triumph of counterfeit philosophy. The the triumph of false teachers in the world. In short, this is God giving humanity over to its desire for falsehood. 
Now we come to the second horseman, verses 3 and 4. It says, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the, li- the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Notice this one is the color of blood. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So, Counterfeit religion has taken hold, and now we see the rise of gratuitous violence. This red horse represents the triumph of wars, conflicts, anarchy, tyranny. Again, Matthew chapter 24, Christ said, quote, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and lawlessness will increase. So the triumph of false teaching and then the triumph of gratuitous violence. Then we come to the third horseman, verses 5 and 6. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. That is a pair of of measuring scales. Verse 6, and I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So we've had the triumph of false teaching, the triumph of gratuitous violence. Now we see the rise and triumph of extreme scarcity in the world. You see, a denarius was a day's wage. And so, for someone to say a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, they are describing a time in which it'll require an entire day's wage to provide one meal for one person for one day. This is the rise of extreme scarcity. And the person says, and do not harm the oil and wine, meaning, look, be careful with the supplies that you have because you're not going to find any more once these run out. See, it's a picture of economic devastation caused by war and violence, by hyperinflation, collapsing supply chains, corruption, theft, crop failures, and more. So the rise of false teaching, the rise of violence, the rise of economic hardship, and now we come to the fourth horseman, verses 7 and 8. It says, And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the word translated pale here refers to a greenish-grayish color. It's basically the color of a corpse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So... Now we've had false religion, then violence, then economic ruin. And now, as a natural consequence of all of this, we have massive loss of life. Friends, as we consider these four horsemen together, there are a couple of things to note. First of all, you might notice that everything described in these verses is already present today in one form or another. We do have our false religions in the world today, do we not? We have our false philosophies We also have our gratuitous violence, we have economic hardships, we have our natural disasters, and we've even had world wars causing massive numbers of casualties. So we've experienced 
each of these to some extent already. And friends, that's simply because we live in a world that is under the curse of sin. And these things are the awful consequences of sin. But I want you to understand that these four horsemen represent a time to come when things become much, much worse. See, it's a time in the future when everything that is wrong with the world today reaches their great culmination. These four horsemen don't just represent the presence of these calamities in the world. They represent the triumph of these things in the world. The triumph of falsehood, violence, scarcity, and death. So what we have here at the start of the day of the Lord, and in the first phase of that day, is God finally saying to sinful humanity, okay, you have said you don't want me in your life. Well, you don't have to have me anymore. I withdraw my presence from this world. I withdraw my grace. And now you may have life without me. You may have your civilizations without me. And we see humanity now getting what it said that it wanted and suffering the awful consequences of it. Rebellious humanity said, we don't want God's truth. So God said, okay, you can live under a lie. Humanity said, we don't want God's laws. So God said, okay, you can have lawlessness. Humanity said, we don't want God's wisdom. So God said, okay, you can have folly in all of the misery that comes with it. Humanity said, we don't want God's life. And so God said, okay, you can be swallowed up in death. This is God turning humanity over to what it said it wanted and now suffering the dreadful consequences of that. No, friends, there's a lesson here for each one of us, you know, in... In our own sin, we can think that life without God would be better than life with God. And I've heard it more than once, and I'm sure you have too. Maybe you've thought it yourself. Thought, look, it's so much better with the law of God out of the way, with the the word of God gone, isn't it better to be my own king, to do my own thing, to have life my own way, to just follow the desires of my heart wherever they might lead? Life is better that way. That's the definition of freedom in our society, is it not? It's to be released from all external constraint. But friends, if God truly gave us what we wanted, life would not be better for us. We would be an abject misery. We'd be living lies. We would be victimized by violence. We would know nothing but want and hardship. And eventually, we would know death. That's what God warned our first parents about in the Garden of Eden. Remember, they said, the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall die. That is the end of rejecting me, God was saying. And that theme is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That is always the end game when we choose life without God. And here, as the day of the Lord begins, we find God withdrawing himself from the world, giving the world what it wants, and what it wants ends up destroying humanity.
Well, friends, now we come to verse 9. Here we move to the fifth seal. A new phase of the day of the Lord. And here the scene shifts from earth back up to heaven. So look at verses 9 and 10 together. It says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, so you, you notice here, John is back in heaven. He, he's in the throne room again. He sees an altar in that heavenly throne room. And now there are souls, human souls, huddled underneath heaven's altar. John tells us that these are human beings whose bodies were killed on earth because of their commitment to Christ. Friends, their presence in heaven under the altar speaks to some important truths. First of all, it speaks to the fact that for all of us, for all of us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The scriptures do not teach a doctrine of purgatory, which says there is a middle place in the afterlife between heaven and hell that believers go to first. No, there's no such thing as purgatory. Neither do the scriptures teach something called soul sleep, which is the doctrine that says once we die, our souls go dormant and remain with the body until the resurrection at the last day. No, the scriptures don't teach that either. Scriptures teach that at death, the soul is removed from the body and it goes into the presence of God. And not just into his presence, but into a state of conscious existence. Here we see the souls in heaven. They are awake. They're alert. They're conversing with God. Friends, this is the state of all of God's children after death and before that final resurrection. Friends, here we see the souls of martyrs under the altar in heaven. Undoubtedly, these are people who had come to faith in Christ during the day of the Lord. And because of the triumph of falsehood and of violence, they've all been killed for their faith. And now here they are in heaven in God's presence. There's a second important truth to note here. Their placement under the altar. Okay, I think that speaks to the special place that martyrs have in God's heart. Just to be clear what I mean by the word martyr, okay? in, in Christianity, a martyr is not somebody who died while killing other people. Okay? That's radical Islam, not Christianity. In Christianity, a martyr is someone who is so committed to Christ that they were willing to be killed rather than give up their profession of faith. A Christian martyr is a victim of violence, not a perpetrator of violence. And friends, God has a very special place in his heart for those whose commitment to him runs so deep that even when their very lives are on the line, they will not give up their allegiance to him. Martyr is someone who has shed their blood for Christ in an analogous way to how Christ shed his blood for them. So he's very precious to them, and they are precious to him. You'll notice they're under the altar here in the Old Testament scriptures. An altar was a place of worship. In fact, it's where the blood of a sacrificial animal would be sprinkled in worship to God. And here we have these martyrs. Their blood has been sprinkled, as it were, on the heavenly altar. They have worshipped him with their very lives. 
Verse 10, we hear the plea of these martyrs. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So listen, these, these martyrs under the altar, they know that the time is short. They know the day of the Lord has begun. The kingdom of God is on the horizon. All that is wrong with the world is about to be made right. God is bringing his, his justice to bear on the world, they cannot wait for this to happen. And so they are asking God, how long do we have to wait? We know it's coming really soon. It's any day. How much longer? You notice they're not asking in a disrespectful manner, for they call him sovereign Lord and holy and true. This is, this is the song of all true child of God. We long for God to complete His work on the earth. We long for Him to finally, once and for all, put away sin to establish His righteousness. Oh, and we long for the resurrection to come when we will have bodies no longer plagued with disease and decay, where harm can no longer come to us. We long for it. We long for the day when God will vindicate His name on the earth. And so that's why these martyrs are crying out, God, how much longer must we wait? Well, we see our Lord's reply in verse 11. It says, Then they, that is these martyrs, were each given a white robe. I think this speaks to our Lord's great pleasure in these martyrs. And then next it says, He told them to rest a little longer. This reminds us that heaven is a state of rest for the children of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and in that spiritual state with God, there is no more sin to plague your soul. There is no more harm to come to you. You are in a state of blessedness, of communion with God himself. And so as God looks at the martyrs under this altar, and they're asking, how much longer must we wait? He says to them, know this, I am pleased with you. Here is a robe. And he says to them, enjoy your blessed state right now. Just enjoy your blessed state. And then his next response, it says, rest a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and brothers should be complete who are to be killed as you yourselves have been. Enjoy your blessed state and rest in my sovereignty. That's what he is saying to the martyrs. Rest in my sovereignty. God says here that he has a, a specific number of individuals in mind who will believe in him, commit themselves to him, and then be killed for him. And he tells these martyrs that full number has not yet been reached. So just wait a little while longer. There are more that still must lose their lives for my sake. When their full number comes in, then, then the end will come. Friends, isn't it comforting to know that God is sovereign over all of the affairs of this world and even over our individual lives? Even when it comes to the manner and the timing of our own deaths, God is sovereign over that. And friends, while God is not the author of sin, neither does he commit any sin, nor does he approve of sin, yet God can still take the evil actions of man, like the evil of murder, 
and He can turn it around for His people's good. He can accomplish everlasting good through even the worst offenses. Think of, think of the Lord Jesus Christ, victim of the world's greatest injustice, and yet God used it to achieve the world's greatest good, the salvation of multitudes. And so God says to these martyrs, take, take this robe, enjoy your blessed state right now, and just wait. Trust in my sovereign plan. Wait until the full number of, of martyrs has come. Then the end will arrive. But Christian, there is never a moment in your life when God is not watching over you. Even in your closing moments, He is there with you. You know, I think this final statement also explains part of the reason for the delay in the, uh, the final accomplishment of, of God's plans, and that is His mercy towards sinners. You understand that God has the power to transform the world in the blink of an eye. And he could put away all injustice right now. He could establish His kingdom in a blink, but He doesn't. Here we see the day of the Lord unfolding over an extended period of time. Years, in fact. And we don't see all of God's judgments coming at once. They come in a cascade as one becomes more severe than the next. This is actually God's mercy at work. He is giving people an opportunity to process the fact that He is there, He is real, He is holy, and that He is going to change this world order and that people ought to repent and trust in Him if they want to be a part of it. He's giving them time to process, time to repent. And indeed, that will happen. He tells these martyrs in heaven, there are more yet to come who will believe, who will be committed to me, and then who will die. So there is more salvation yet to be seen, even in this day of the Lord. And friends, this should give us all patience as we await the consummation of all things. Friends, it's right and good for us to pray as the scriptures tell us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the book of Revelation ends, it says, come Lord Jesus. It's right for us to long for his coming, to pray that he would hasten the day. But friends, also understand that every day that he tarries, he's giving us another opportunity to either repent, trust in him and in the sacrifice of his son, and to to be saved, or the opportunity for us to tell another about the salvation that he offers. And so, yes, we pray that God would hasten the day, but we also seize every moment that he gives us as he tarries. To summarize the first part of this chapter, friends, God has appointed a great day in which he will vindicate his name. He will deal with sin once and for all. Those who love him long for it. We see that with the fifth seal, but now finally, those who do not love him, those who do not love him, really ought to fear it. They ought to fear it because the terror of that day will be unspeakable. Look at verses 12 to 14. Friends, as the day of the Lord continues to unfold, look what happens next. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake this could also be translated a, a convulsion. So now the very foundations of the earth are beginning to rattle. And he goes on, And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. So now massive atmospheric disturbance, such that sunlight during the day cannot come through, and the light of the moon at night appears blood red. 
And then it goes on still further. Verse 13, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, describing some kind of cosmic bombardment. And then verse 14, And the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled away, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So everything in the universe that appeared stable and sure is now giving way. Mountains are shaking. Islands are receding. Heavenly bodies are growing dark. Everything that man thought he could put his confidence in is being taken away. And we see humanity's reaction, verses 15 to 17. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Several noteworthy points here. First, you'll notice that no one on earth is exempted from these calamities. Here we have rich and poor, strong and weak, slave and free. They all alike are experiencing the calamities. You'll notice, secondly, that the scale of these calamities is unprecedented in world history. It is clear that a major change has taken place in the form of God's judgment. So in the first phase of the day of the Lord with those four seals, the four horsemen, God was simply giving rebellious humanity over to what it said it wanted and allowing them to experience the natural consequences of their choices. This is different. This is now God actively bringing judgments. He is shaking the very foundations of the earth getting the world's attention, and he has gotten it. You notice, you notice what they say here. They say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So everyone on earth knows exactly why these disasters have come, and they are begging the mountains and the rocks to hide them from God's face. My friends, don't let your theology come from the Left Behind series, okay? When, when the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be no question about what these calamities are from. Everybody will know, every last person, that this is the Lord's doing. That He is bringing just judgments upon the earth for their rejection of Him and His law. They will know it is Him. They will know this unusual wording that it is the wrath of the Lamb. They will know it and they will fear it. You see, these people on earth here, they they saw Christ come for His church. That was chapter 4. They know why they are experiencing these disasters. They know these cascading calamities are God's response to their unending contempt of Him and His law and of His gospel offer. They know that God's intention is to lay waste to all of their corrupt kingdoms and to establish His own perfect kingdom on the earth. They know this is why everything is happening. And they say, verse 17, for the great day of our wrath has come, or excuse me, the great day of their wrath God and the Lamb, their wrath has come. And who can stand? Our Lord answers this question in Matthew 24. He says, quote, There will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would survive. 
So long enough to give humanity a chance to respond in faith and repentance, short enough that some lives are indeed spared. My friends, I love this quote from Joseph Mangina. He writes, The book of Revelation helps to purge us of our fantasies concerning God. God is not whatever we would like Him to be. God is God. He's the creator and the omnipotent one glimpsed in the heavenly worship. He is power indeed, but not power at human disposal and control. Friends, if the book of Revelation teaches us anything, it is this. That God does not exist for us, but we exist for God. God created this world, and He created humanity. And He made humanity in His image, and He created us to know Him and love Him and worship Him, to serve Him, to enjoy communion with Him. But our first parents made a choice to walk away from God, decided to be their own kings instead of having God as their king. And God told them the day that they made that choice, they chose death over life. Friends, a major theme from Genesis to Revelation is the theme of humanity's rebellion against God and all of the terrible consequences that flow from that. We exist for God, and when we walk away from God, Calamity is the inevitable result. Friends, this takes me to my final application for the morning. There is a way to be rescued from all of this. There's a way to be rescued from it. We've touched on it already. There's a way to avoid the day of the Lord altogether. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, our Lord Jesus said this, Because you have kept my word, here he's talking to the saints, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming upon the whole world. So there is the answer. Do you want to avoid the hour of trial? Keep his words. What does it mean to keep his words? Well, first of all, it means recognizing that God is God and we are not means recognizing that Christ is the eternal Son of God, that He is our lamb-like lion and our lion-like lamb, and that He is God's solution to our sin problem. He's the one that God sent to live, die, and rise again for our sakes. To heed God's words means to recognize all that God says about you, to recognize it as the truth, and therefore to see your need to repent of sin, repent of rebellion against God, and to embrace Him in wholehearted repentance and faith. It's to trust in God with the whole soul, to take your place in His church. Do this, do this, and the hour of trial will not come upon you. My friend, if you haven't taken these steps yet, won't you do so now? What would keep you from doing so? Why would you choose death over life? Choose life today, my friends. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, we thank you for this passage of your word. Lord, the the imagery so vivid, the descriptions of your day, um, just jarring even. 
But Lord, we know that you have, have put this in your word for our benefit. It's to shake the indifferent out of their indifference, and it's to bring some measure of comfort to your people as they, they realize there will be a day in which your name is vindicated. Lord, I pray for those of us uh, who have come to know you in saving faith. Lord, comfort us through this text, but then also give us that sense of urgency that we would use the time in which you tarry to tell others about the gift of your Son, the life that he extends to all who will receive it. Lord, for those who have been far from you, they, they know who they are. They, they know that things are not right with you, Lord. Don't let them leave today without their conscience being stricken with their need to get right with you, to put away sin once and for all, and to embrace the gift that you offer through your Son. And Lord, if any should do that today, would you please also give them the courage to catch me after the service, catch Pastor Scott or a Christian friend that they they have seated next to them, and to ask for help on their next spiritual steps. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.